professionals outside of, of the profession will be talking today. So, um, firstly, you know, the question is, why do we need to care about actuaries in society? Um, so, we can take it back to the, the kind of easy answer of what's in, in our professional code of conduct, and we, we talk about our public interest. But I think beyond that, there's a lot more that actuaries can look into, and I think the panel today and Ryan, who will be speaking after that, will look into that in a bit more detail. Um, I think particularly, you know, looking at 2016, we've had a very exciting year in terms of problems if you look at um, what's happened in South Africa with the Fees Must Fall movement, the Trump election and Brexit, all three risks which people didn't see happening and all relating to social cohesion issues um, and a lot where I think actuaries could come in to quantify, mitigate and provide solutions. So with that in mind, just to give you an intro of what's happening today, we'll have a panel discussion for the first hour. Um, and then in the second half of the session, we'll have Brian coming in to do um, a talk around the role of actuaries within CSI initiatives. So let's kick off with the first session. So on our panel, we have Dr. Prego Ramsamy, who's the CEO of Finmark Trust. Uh, Finmark Trust promotes pro-poor development through financial inclusion, doing a range of policy work research, and is responsible for facilitating and presenting results of the FinScope survey. So I think Dr. Ramsamy will talk a little bit on that um, shortly. Um, he was also previously the Executive Secretary of the Southern African Development Community and brings a wealth of experience from the development sector to share with us today. Uh, next, we have Ruth Benjamin-Swells. She's the CEO of the CISA Foundation. Uh, Ruth is responsible for numerous initiatives linked to sustainability of the financial services sector. She's responsible for delivering effective consumer financial education programs nationally and through the CISA Enterprise Development Fund. And then lastly, we have Soshan Subramani, um, proudly an actuary from ASA as well, who's working at Old Mutual. Uh, Soshan operates uh, as the micro-insurance lead within the strategic partnerships team at Old Mutual. Um, he has previously worked on financial literacy initiatives um, as well, so he brings through a lot of experience from that as well. And currently, he's a venture design leader for Blue Marble Consortium, which was um, our opening plenary uh, John Lamb Tennant spoke on yesterday, so I'm sure he'll add more uh, detail and color around, around the whole initiative. And he's also responsible for launching the, the weather insurance index-based crop insurance under Blue Marble, which was piloted um, earlier last week um, for small-scale farmers in Zimbabwe. Uh, so with that, I'd like to hand over to Dr. Ramsamy, who's going to give us an opportunity to share his findings from the latest Finscope survey, and then we'll, we'll flow into a uh, general discussion amongst the panel. Good afternoon. As uh, Divya said, I'm from Finmark Trust, and uh, we started uh, working in South Africa in 2002. But uh, over time, you know, when we gain sufficient experience, we've been extending our work to the SADC region, and now we're working globally. What do we do? is we try to make financial access possible. We try to bring financial services to the poor. In fact, we try to make financial markets work for the poor. And as I've said, you know, we work throughout the world and uh, we put a lot of emphasis on poverty alleviation. We've done what we call our FinScope surveys. We covered uh, all the SADC countries. We've covered uh, countries in Asia. We've covered other countries in uh, Africa. And the slide uh, on the screen will give you an idea of uh, the status of financial inclusion as measured by access in the 15 countries of the SADC region, excluding Angola. You'll find that uh, Seychelles leads the pack with 94%, followed by Mauritius, 85%. Then you've got uh, South Africa and uh, the rest. And you can see that there's a lot of uh, sort of uh, 
discrepancies in terms of uh, financial inclusion across the different countries. Some very low, some very high. Some have got uh, more in terms of informal financial services. But uh, what is financial inclusion? Financial inclusion has got a multidimensional characteristic. It has got an element of access, an element of affordability, an element of proximity, and also, most important, an element of quality. So when we talk of access, we might have a huge access in terms of people having bank accounts, but does it mean that they are financially included? My answer is no, because the quality of such access may not be the right quality. Let me take the case of South Africa, for instance. We've got now 77% of the popul adult population, they are bank, and if we add uh, those who've got access to financial services, regulated but non-bank, you know, it comes to about 86%. But then when we apply a measurement of quality, which looks at savings, investment, insurance, then transactional banking, you find that it's only 23% of the population, adult population, that uh, really have got uh, sufficient uh, sort of financial inclusivity. So it doesn't mean that when you've got huge access, the quality of financial inclusion is also good. So we are working on that now to improve the quality of financial inclusion. So, and uh, if I go on to the slide, now what we've done is to look at the SADC region. And it is very distressing to find out in the SADC region there are about 42 million people who are completely excluded. They don't have access to financial services. And yet now SADEC is talking of an industrialization strategy. How do we do an industrialization strategy with so many people excluded from the financial services? With 80% of the small, medium and medium industries being informal. So we need to bring all these in the fold of financial inclusion. And you can see from the figures that uh, we've got uh, only about 45 million people in the SADC region out of 280 million people who are bank. Later on, perhaps my colleague will go further when they speak about uh, other issues that is very associated with financial inclusion, like uh, education. We need to have financial literacy, which brings a certain degree of improving the quality of financial inclusion. Thank you. Hello, can, okay, there we go, I'm back on live. Um, so I just want to bring in the experiences of Ruth and Soshan. Um, Ruth, you, you work for an industry body and you're doing a lot in the financial inclusion and financial literacy space. Soshan, you come from a corporate background, but you're also doing a lot within the space. So bringing in your own experiences, maybe you can, you can talk to those and share why we should focus on financial inclusion. Thank you, Didier, and thank you for the privilege of being able to be here. Afternoon, everybody. So as Dr. Ram Sami uh, so uh, clearly pointed out, you know, the whole issue of financial inclusion speaks to the issue of poverty alleviation. Um, and the space that I find myself in is that we, very, that we focused on activities within South Africa. Um, I'm from ASISA, which is the Association for Savings and Investments in South Africa. And we've got a our membership base is made up of all the asset managers and all the um, life insurance companies. And I'm sure that quite a few of you sitting in the audience actually work for or form part of our membership um, base. But I think what's really important to note is that ASISA's members manage nearly 9 trillion rands worth of assets within the South African economy. 
But juxtaposed to that, so, so we are a significant player, all of, all of our membership base, we are significant players in, within South Africa. But juxtaposed to that is the stat that Finmark recently highlighted for us, is that 81% of our population in South Africa earn less than 6,000 rand. And just the other day when they were talking about the minimum wages, apparently 43% of working people earn less than three and a half thousand rand. So I think if you just let those stats sink in, I mean, it's really, you, it gives you a sense of which markets are we actually serving, and particularly, I think, um, those of uh, the, the actuarial members who work within, our, you know, within the ASISA membership base, you know, where the focus is and, and, and the shift that needs to happen to be able to include so many more people within, um, within the financial services sector. Um, so the focus for CISA and our Foster the Future initiatives is really all about economic participation and helping to facilitate people who are currently and who were previously marginalized and not included um, through various initiatives. One of the big enablers that we have in our country in South Africa at the moment is the, the BE codes, but particularly for the financial services sector is the financial sector charter codes, which really is intended to serve as an incentive to help people to focus on the different pillars of economic inclusion or where we, how we can help to include people who were previously uh, disadvantaged. Now one of the, okay, so, so there are about nine pillars and they include for instance ownership, um, uh, employment equity, skills development, preferential procurement, enterprise and supply development, and in fact the CISA has an enterprise and supply development fund which focuses on exactly that, helping to identify businesses in the supply chain of all of our members and equipping them to grow and strengthen their businesses so that they can have more participation in, in the, the preferential procurement um, environment. Um, but then there's also empowerment financing, there's socio-economic development, which I think we've come a long way as a country in terms of CSI programs, socio-economic uh, development programs, but the code helps us to focus on the more financial inclusion component of that. And then the final one is what Dr. Ramsamy referred to, which is access, which is really all about making sure that we are focusing on the type of products and programs that will enable greater access by the majority of the people who up till today is actually significantly excluded. Firstly, by the type of products, um, uh, firstly because of the, the lack of income, and secondly, by the type and the quality of the products, and thirdly, by some of the, the regulations and the limitations that we currently have within the products. So just on that topic, for instance, we have many, many people in our country who work intermittently. So they, they might be employed, but for a time period, um, but we all know that if you're wanting to take any quality product, you need to pay regular premiums. Most savings and investment programs require either a minimum lump sum or a monthly lump sum that is payable, or insurance, for instance, you, you, have, you can't miss a premium. So just those minimum requirements exclude many people from being able to access uh, relevant products and pr products that will help them to shift their financial situation and improve their financial well-being. So anyway, that's, that's why I believe financial inclusion and our focus on that is so important. Uh, thanks. So, Divya, yeah, you said, you know, the, I work in the corporate, so I should, you know, I'll probably be the one talking about profits. And yes, this is a huge opportunity, you know, to make profits, to do good business. Um, but more important than that, you know, as actuaries, I would think that one of the things that we're interested in is, yes, there's a big market opportunity, very low, uh, you know, uh, penetration of insurance. If you look at every hundred people in South Africa, I'm going to use David O'Brien's statistic there, and I can see him sitting there, so hope the statistic is still valid. But for every hundred people, we have about, uh, you know, uh, over just over a third of them with mobile phones. If you take off those 30 or 33 people for every hundred, about one of them has access to insurance. Uh, and as a profession operating uh, on the African continent, I think that should be something that deeply um, worries us and challenges us, and it's an exciting problem for us to, to solve. On a personal level, I've just achieved a huge amount of motivation and inspiration and exposure to innovation by trying to tackle uh, problems of access to insurance.
Do you want to tell us a little bit more about uh, your work as well, in specific? Or yeah, yeah. So, um, so I'm working on uh, drought insurance for smallholder farmers in Zimbabwe, and I think you know the, uh, agriculture insurance is a good example of where our industry has seen um, a huge amount of innovation and some something where we can. I'd like to see a lot more actuaries getting involved in. Um, so a typical example is where you've got a smallholder farmer who's you know, investing about 200 or $300 in an entire season in their maize planting. That's their entire livelihood going into, um, into their planting of their, their, you know, their seeds. Um, and they are entirely dependent. Their livelihood is entirely dependent on the uncertainty in terms of the timing and the amount of rain that comes. Um, so for us to be able to protect that livelihood, we need to find a way to deliver a very low premium in, uh, insurance for them. Uh, and the way that the Kilima Salama project in Kenya achieved that was to install solar-powered weather stations in Kenya and use the readings from, from these weather stations to automatically pay out farmers when, the, when they pick up that, the rain, that a certain amount of rain hasn't fallen. And the way they do that is uh, through the creation of an index, hence the name index insurance or, or weather index insurance. Yeah. Thanks for Absolutely. that. Yeah. So I think I've picked up a couple of things from the conversation here, and you're talking specifically around quality. Both uh, Dr. Ramsamy and Ruth have mentioned that. So Dr. Ramsamy, can you delve into that and identify what are the key issues you're seeing here around the products um, that are not meeting the customer need? If, if we look at the insurance sector, see, mm -hmm. at the moment you've got about uh, 20.9 million people who've got access to insurance. And out of this 20.9 million, you've got 18.9 million who've got funeral cover. So the funeral insurance dominates the insurance sector. And I would go further to say we've measured, you know, from 2006 up to now, over a 10-year period, the funeral insurance. And we see that in 2006, there were about 1 million people who had multiple cover, funeral cover. And now it has reached 5 million. Why do people take multiple cover, especially for funeral insurance? It is because one insurance does not cover all the needs. You know, when there is a funeral, you're very vulnerable at that moment. And uh, you've got to incur different expenses, the coffin, transport, food, and no single insurance will cover everything. So you've got to take different insurance. And we've seen that people now are saving in stock fells, in, bur in burial societies, for funeral cover. So I'm taking one example of quality where we need to look into what type of insurance that we can offer, you know. And then the second thing is there is no consumer centricity approach. At times we sit in an office and we think that we can provide insurance to the people, but we don't know whether this type of insurance fit the needs of the people. And this is where we are going wrong, you know. So we need to go at the doorsteps of the people and find out what do they need. The other aspect is those agents. Agents are just interested in selling numbers. Why? Because they make commissions on numbers. But they don't go and ask the people, is it the type of insurance, is it the type of products that you need? You know, those, those are the issues, I've given only two examples, but there are many examples that yeah. we can look at. So when you just talk about the issue of agricultural insurance. I was thinking, you know, so many people take funeral insurance. If we add a little premium on that funeral insurance, but give them a cover on agricultural insurance, would that not work? I don't have the answer, but you can do the maths mm -hmm. and see how it will work. Perhaps your colleagues sitting there, you know, can do that and mm -hmm. see. So you would have covered both the funeral aspect of it and the agricultural aspect of it and the livelihood depends on agriculture. So these are the things that you know we need to look at yeah. and try to come out with possible solutions. And, and Ruth, from your side, how, how does financial literacy assist with this? Um, mm -hmm. Because a lot comes out of 
actually empowering people and make better choices around mm. what products to use. Mm. Maybe you can talk a bit on mm. that. Thanks, Debbie. So I think you know, financial education is critical to helping people to make the right decisions around the products. I think we were talking earlier this morning about how within all of our communities, there's a, there is a micro, uh, an ecosystem that operates, and it operates efficiently to meet the needs of the people. P people are, are innovative and ingenious, and where there's a need, they'll create a solution. But often that solution might come with huge risks and significant costs. So, for instance, in the funeral, uh, uh, funeral cover scenario, people take multiple funeral cover, but that's because they need immediate funds for cash payouts and they, they need to be able to uh, pay for the funeral parlor and all the different components of a funeral, but some of the products also just have a cash payout which, which they are then able to access that cash. So they intentionally take out multiple funeral uh, policies because they know that there's a cash component that, will, that they can then access. But that speaks to the whole issue about are we providing appropriate and relevant products to, to the market, or is the market just using the funeral product for multiple needs that they have? So I, I believe really from what we're seeing on the ground, there's a huge scope for us to rethink the type of products that, that, that are being offered. Also, what's really important, if we're really talking about financial inclusion, the focus of, of what the financial education ought to be is not just about temporary saving or, or life cover. So one of the big challenges we have now is that people end up with multiple life insurance cover. You know, every time they buy a cell phone, they just sign the form, the contract, there's multiple pages, sign here, sign here. But then when they buy a stereo system, that you know, it's also um, sign here. And so they end up with multiple life cover that they actually don't really need. But they don't have the education, they don't ask the questions around that. And that is why objective consumer financial education is so critical. The challenge of when individual companies do the financial education is that it's often uh, received with skepticism because the, the, the uh, beneficiaries of the programs assume that they're only being told enough information to get them to buy the products. And whilst the financial sector charter code has been pushing targets for access, so, you know, we will sell more and more products that we can tick the box of access. But the question is, is it the right product? And do people have sufficient information to make the right choices? And that's why financial education is so important. So quite a few, all of our programs right now is focused um, very much on helping people to understand. I mean, we find one of the key areas where they need help um, to understand. And when they understand this, it changes the whole um, approach to which products they ought to be considering. It's the whole issue of compound interest and just understanding how compound interest works, both positively and negatively. So I'm sure you're all aware of the fact that you have these machinises or loan sharks out there. And we were talking earlier, again, we call them loan sharks, but actually in many communities they are highly respected people because they really exist to meet the needs of those people at a point of time, a point of crisis um, that they face. However, they are completely unregulated in most instances, and the type of interest, I, I was shocked here, they could charge up to 50% compounded daily interest. I mean, you need to, you actually, if you just do that uh, projected figure of what you're actually having to repay at the end of the day, it's just shocking. And, and so financial education is there to teach people to ask the right questions. So am I going to be charged interest? What interest? If it's compounded, how is it compounded? Is it daily, monthly, weekly, annually? Trying to teach that concept in and of itself is actually quite um, a challenging task. Um, so we've had to come up with a lot of different innovative ways to, to teach that concept. But just making people aware of it, that it even exists. So on the one hand, you have the issue about, and, and that's how, how every, I mean, a huge proportion of our population is caught up in, in debt right now and just giving them an understanding of how that debt escalates because of the issues of compound interest um, gives them a, a much better insight in terms of um, what happens when they just sign up a contract, when they choose to buy on credit instead of saving to buy um, with cash. So for instance, some of the M&E feedback that we've had on some of our programs is indicating that as a result of the education in that field, people have actually asked the questions, they actually think first before they just go ahead and buy and prefer to defer, we're trying to encourage them 
to defer the, the um, acquisition until they have enough money as opposed to um, just buying on credit. And even if they do buy on credit, for them to ask the question about what are the interest rates and how is it being compounded. And then the other side of that, which should encourage saving and should dissuade them from just saving money under a mattress or even just in a stock file group which just keeps it in a in a typical savings account. There's two things. The one is just helping them understand the difference between different accounts. So a transactional account actually, you know, money goes in, bank charges get deducted, but actually there's no real interest that gets gets uh, allocated to that. And maybe we can talk about that later around the SASA. But the other side of that, of teaching them about compound interest, is that if you actually find the right type of investment product, your, your money will grow. So whether it's in a money market account, because they need cash ac uh, access to cash uh, sooner, um, or easier, or whether it's putting it in, in, in a unit trust. So the whole issue of educating the population around the different products that are there, that do operate in the interest, is something that is really critical, and we, I believe, many, we all need to play a part in doing that. Picked up from you, there's two issues here. One, clearly there's a, a lack of information flowing to them and empowerment that comes with having that information. But mm -hmm. secondly, it seems to be that we can learn a lot from these loan sharks, Mashanisas, uh, burial societies. They, they seem to be getting something right. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot we can learn around that. And, and, and I'm, I'm, a key part is most likely around trust. So um, having seen how some of the products are structured internally, just from my own experiences within a, a corporate kind of setting, we've got to ask ourselves how, how is, is that relatable to someone who is pressed for time, pressed for information, and also in terms of what their daily movements are like on social. I don't know your experiences around TCF, for example. Um. Yeah, I, I guess my personal experience is just, uh, you know, one, uh, I'll, I'll pick pick on our own company and make myself vulnerable here by saying that, you know, we have a, a savings product for the mass market. And I'm, you know, I was familiar with the product, but when a family member received their contract in an envelope at home, I thought, okay, you bought something from Old Mutual. And then he said, yeah, somebody phoned me. Um, and so I opened up uh, his contract. And I, was, I knew the product name, so I knew exactly what he bought. But I had to flick and flick and flick. And somewhere on you know, page 16 or 17, we said, uh, oh, by the way, you've bought a savings plan. You're contributing 200 rand a month. And, this, and I thought, how can, how can we let this happen? You know, this is meant to be our mass market product. We've obviously made steps to, to, to fix that. But I think the point is that as actuaries, as product owners, as business owners, are we thinking about the customers that we that we serve and truly, uh, you know, asking ourselves, would we would we have sold that to our uncle or grandmother, or mother? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so the first problem is clearly around the quality of products in in in, our, in the environment at the moment. But the second problem problem is is clearly around how do we then bring in more people into the financial system? So, Dr. Ramsamy, why are so many individuals on the continent currently excluded? What are the key drivers behind these high I think, numbers? I think there are a number of factors. The first one is, at times, people they don't have the right type of information, and uh, they are also unemployed. They don't have money to put in the bank the little amount of money they want to keep it at home for emergencies because the bank might be far away there's no proximity and if they've got to go to a point of sale or a bank whatever it is they will have to sacrifice a all-day work to go there and when you add you see value for money you find that they spend quite a lot of money to go to the bank so they prefer to keep money at home the other reason is that perhaps a question of trust also if one of their colleagues or one of the family members had a bad experience, you know, and uh, they also don't trust the institution. So there is a question of proximity, question of being employed, irregular employment, uh, not enough money, and also the issue of uh, communication. Let me take the issue of SASA cardholders. We've got about 11 million people who receive grants, and uh, they receive it through the bank, through a card. And all of them, as soon as they get the money, they remove the money and use cash. Why? Because they have been told that if you don't use that money, means that 
you are not vulnerable. So they use this point of sale as a mailbox, just to receive money, take it, use cash, and they don't do any savings. But this is wrong. They should be able to use part of that income to save. But the government has told them, if you don't remove your money, then we consider you not. Yeah, so just to add some color yes. for other people, within three months, if your money is sitting within a SASA account, you don't, for three months, yes, you, the government you lose uh, the money that the you amount would. of money, you know, so mm. it's a question of education again. kind of seems like your savings is not a basic human right, <laughs> I would almost say. Um, so they're, they're saying that you're either destitute or you're able to save. Mm. Yeah. And then the issue of proximity is very important, because... Do you have bricks and mortars for banking, or do you want to bring banking to the doorsteps of the people and use people who speak the same language, people who are from who are part of the community, who will be able you know, to get the confidence of those who want to save money? Okay. Yeah. So, social. I think you know. How do we go about actually moving forward and tackling this? this problem that seems insurmountable, how do we actually make our way into bringing in more people into the system and improving the quality of products to meet the customer need? Uh, how do we do it? <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think that's, a, you know, it's a very important question that I don't think any, we, we, we know the exact answers to. So uh, we've started playing around and trying, trying different things. Um, the issue of collaboration is key. Um, if, if this market segment doesn't trust us and we're not relevant to them, then let's find people who are relevant to them. You know, they are community leaders, community organizations. Um, in the case of the farmers that we're working with in Zimbabwe, we are working with the NGOs that they trust. We're also working with the grain contractors who supply a loan in the form of all the inputs that you need to farm and then they guarantee that they will buy your maize, let's say, at a certain price. So those contractors uh, have a huge amount of trust with the farmers, in our case, and, um, and they listen, you know, they, they would listen to the contractors, uh, and, and they would value what the partners that they trust uh, say is good value. So I think um, collaboration is key. If I can just go back to the Kilimo Salama example, because I mentioned it because it's very well documented in index insurance, but it occurred to me that you know, not everybody would know exactly what the model was about. And I think it's a good example of how if we apply our minds to collaboration, that we can make new innovative ex ways of uh, you know, uh, distributing products um, come to life. So in the Kilimo Salama case, uh, I, I, as I explained, a farmer is investing all their inputs um, into, into the land. They're entirely dependent on the rainfall. Okay, so what um, what the insurer? What, what in this case the innovation didn't come from the insurer, but it was the Syngenta Foundation. Syngenta is a chemical company, and their foundation wanted to help farmers out. And they said, "Okay, well, why don't we attach the insurance to the bag of seeds?" So when the farmer goes to the shop to buy his bag of seeds, the shopkeeper scans his his tag, uh, automatically picks up where the farmer bought the seeds. Uh, in the background, we would then pick up which satellite applies to this farmer. There was then a partnership with the mobile network operator, Safaricom in this case, to say, well, let the farmer have a seamless experience. So the farmer doesn't have to go and physically pay money anywhere or to receive his claim. We use M-Pesa, so we use mobile money for that. Uh, and that's a good example where a mobile network operator came with the mobile money, the Syngenta Foundation came with the distribution because there was seed, it was the seed company and the bag of seeds that allowed this farmer to access the insurance. And the insurer came with, well, the insurance. <laughs> and I think also there's a lot of uh, innovation and technology which obviously then drives down the cost. Mm. Yeah. Um, and like you said, mobile money, a uh, huge success in, in East Africa. Uh, I think it's, it's clearly a path we need to explore more, Dr. Amsami. Yes. True, because uh, Mpeza had uh, still got, has got a huge success in uh, East Africa, but I wouldn't say the same thing for Southern Africa, especially South Africa. You know, when M-Pesa was launched in 2007 in Kenya, the infrastructure 
was not there. So they had a huge uptake because people in the remote areas, in the rural areas, didn't have access to a sophisticated infrastructure like we've got in South Africa. And uh, that's why people bought into this and pays the mobile money. In South Africa, Vodacom tried it and they invested quite a lot of money. Their objective was to achieve about, uh, was to get about 10 million subscribers by last year. You know what was the figure? 76,000. So people don't take that type of uh, product. Why? Because nobody spent more than 30 minutes to get to a point of sale in South Africa. You've got ATMs all over the place, the infrastructure is sophisticated, and people don't have trust because they're not using it, they don't have a trust in the system. So it will take a bit of time for innovation technology comes into play. The second thing is regulation. In Kenya, when uh, Safaricom applied for the license, it didn't apply for the license, said that we want to get involved in mobile money. The governor of the bank said, we give you a no objection, will regulate only if we find problems. There were no problems, there was no regulation as such. And spread into East Africa. Now what Tanzania has done recently is to have interoperability of different systems. So that, you know, you can change from one service provider to the other. In other countries, they don't allow it. So if you want to get into that business, you've got to build your own infrastructure, which is quite expensive. The third factor is, of course, the lobbying by the existing banks. So banks in South Africa say, why should the MNOs get into that field? They will have to abide to the same rules and regulations as we. They will have to put down a certain amount of deposit. So all these are factors that inhibit the penetration of uh, mobile money mm -hmm. in South Africa and some of the other SADC countries. But as I've said, Tanzania is doing uh, this interoperability. Now Mozambique is doing Madagascar is doing it. So we'll, I'm trying to see what will be the consequences of all those innovations and the flexibility in terms of yeah. regulations. So, so now in terms of our actuarial profession, um, you, you mentioned that we've got to look at products from the ground upwards. So Ruth, you do, there, there's quite a lot of on the ground projects you are involved with. Um, but firstly, let me ask you, Soshan, um, do you think that um, our education and CBD system does enough to equip us? Um, and then following on from that, Ruth and Dr. Ramsamy, maybe you can comment on some of the, the initiatives that have happened, that do happen, um, that immerse you into specific scenarios to learn more. Um, so, I, th I think no. You know, my, my view is that it, it doesn't. Um, a lot of the people who are involved in, in financial inclusion probably get most of the experience from, you know, from actual work experience after kind of being in the environment and, you know, but we have, uh, we obviously have the huge issue of transformation in our, in, in our actuarial society. So uh, that's one issue that's obviously a, a big warning sign for us that we're not connected and we're, we're you know, uh, at huge risk of not being socially relevant. But I think in terms of the syllabus, um, I, it, this would probably be a good question to check with the audience what other people think, but I, I think for me, one big gap is the issue of sustainability. So we're, we're having crazy things that are happening to the planet, you know, um, with, with the Paris Agreement, even if we do achieve a two-degree world. Uh, and, and, and again, that's just, um, yeah, that if everything kind of falls into place and everything happens just right, then we'll just make it. But the consequences are huge, you know, uh, very big. And the most vulnerable populations are going to be, uh, you know, people who are dependent on the land for, for, for their food, who are living in coastal areas that are potentially, you know, not going to exist anymore. Um, so I think in terms of the global issue of sustainability and where the vulnerable parts of the, of the population are, I think our syllabus is probably not doing enough to expose us to that. The other thing in terms of ways of working, uh, being socially connected to the types of organizations, the public uh, public bodies, you know, policy makers, I think that's also where we're lacking, you know. Uh, through my work, for example, I've been exposed to 
which NGOs are doing what, what the UN is interested in, what the World Bank is currently sponsoring. Um, as an insurance industry, we have you know things like the, the, the Insurance Development Forum that has started, and that was in response to uh, to Ban Ki Moon's call to, to the to the insurance industry to do something about um, collaboratively tackling these these challenges. But I don't think that you know that much has been done. I think it's um, I think we've got a long way to go. Yeah, I'd like to open up to any questions now, if, if anybody has any comments or questions on this specifically. If there are. Because David, um, we get a mic. And there's a gentleman there as well. Oh, okay. Okay. Okay, so we've got three questions. So we just need a second mic also at the back, thanks. Rob Thompson. Uh, a few years ago I did some research with a sociologist on burial societies and what we found was that um, the, the life officers were selling group funeral policies to burial societies. Um, and in the process, undermining the social network that constituted that burial society. Burial societies aren't just financial institutions. They're not about financial soundness. If somebody, if they run out of money, they pass the hat around. In fact, mortality is not their biggest risk. Um, so if, if, um, if insurers are going into that space, there needs to be a very strong consciousness of the need to build up uh, to strengthen the, the ties in those burial societies and make them make sure that they function and that you don't take everything away from them in terms of the control of their own monies. No, I completely agree, agree and I think this is where collaboration uh, respects the, the social constructs and uh, works with the community. Um, David? So I'm, I'm curious to hear funeral plans defined in the context of access. Um, I actually think funeral plans are a tax on the poor. And I'd be curious to know if either the Finmark Trust or the industry has any sense of how much money is invested, let's say, in the dead versus how much money is invested in the living, such as the outcomes from savings plans. Because although there is a, a major cultural imperative to respect the dead, I think the industry has fed into this and you now have created a culture of almost where funerals become competitive social events. Uh, and it is just a ludicrous waste of resources in communities that can't afford it. Um, so I challenge the industry, instead of looking for more funeral plans, could we have savings within a funeral plan? Um, and instead of trying to cover m more groups of people, could we have an, an education plan in the family instead of covering 57 relatives? Um, yeah, so I'd appreciate some commentary, particularly if there's any research, you know, that could express payouts per dead person versus payouts per living person. I think, I think um, yeah. that's a doctor. I'm Sammy, you mentioned earlier, so this is around the funeral cover, you mentioned the proportion of uh, individuals who have funeral cover, and I think it was... It was very high. So it's 19 million the, of yes, the 29 yes. million insured yes. lives in South Africa. So I think, to your point, David, definitely uh, we have an issue where people use funeral policies as savings policies, um, and also it's missold in a sense. Um, uh, it's not meeting a need to, to 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 kind of meet their liquidity needs in the short term. Um, yeah, I think you have more comments. I saw you shaking your head there. Yeah, I, again, I don't see an, a funeral insurance plan as a call it a traditional insurance plan meeting liabilities after death. If you go and quantify how much money is being spent on the funeral, which effectively goes into the hands of the funeral parlors, the gravestone makers, the marquee rental people, the food, you know, there's very little left for survival post the event. So actually, again, I'm saying, it, to me, that's money spent on the dead. It's not spent on the living. Uh, maybe there's a bunch of people who get a, a decent meal that day, but it's actually not socially, it's not socially responsible. Uh, yeah. I think you're absolutely right, you know, because uh, all the money that is saved through the multiple insurance covers, they are used 
immediately. And I can give you figures. A funeral would cost in South Africa between 10,000 to 80,000, depending on the statue of the person. And all this money is being spent on different issues within the three to four days that the funeral would uh, take place. And at the, end of the, at the end of it, you know, they start again paying insurance. Mm. And on top of that, they also belong to Stockfells, to street sort of uh, associations, just to make sure that uh, the, people, the person who's died gets a decent mm. burial. And it's very much related to the culture also of that particular community. So, so I think it's an interesting situation because how do you change a culture um, and how do you positively nudge a culture? Um, but I think what Guy was talking about yesterday, um, you know, everyone has the capacity to, to change their habits. So it's also a question of what we as an industry can do to incentivize people. Mm -hmm. And at the moment we, we are perpetuating the problem by incentivizing brokers to sell more policies. Mm -hmm. So that we certainly have uh, an onus in, in, in this whole role. Mm -hmm. Darren, you have a question? Sorry, I'm over here. I've got a mic. Oh, he's got oh a mic sorry. Yeah, go for it. Patrick Cairns from MoneyWeb. Uh, you, you've mentioned, all of you, I think, the question of trust uh, and how you build trust in your products. Uh, and yet, there seems to be an awful lot of trust in scamsters and fraudsters um, distributing Ponzi schemes and who knows what else in these very same communities. Uh, surely you can be learning, le and I know it sounds ironic, but surely you can be learning lessons from the ways that they go about their business um, and using those lessons to include people in the right ways rather than mm. the wrong ways. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, maybe just a, a comment on that as well. We're also very quick to impose our judgment on, you know, how much interest uh, somebody pays when they take out an, an informal loan, for example. You know, if you're in Zimbabwe, you'd be taking out a chambadzo, for example. And some people pay a huge amount of interest rate per month. But the point is, those, you know, in many cases, that's the, that's the form of resilience that the customer that we're looking at is relying on. You know, that is their point of access to cash. Uh, and it's about when they need the cash that becomes important. So again, perhaps we we could be looking at you know combined models of uh, supplying responsible finance in a way that where we you know temporarily ignore some of our risk measures of what what we apply to credit, um, but knowing that we'll be able to give somebody a better rate than 80% per annum or something, or maybe sometimes more than that. Yeah, so my comment builds on, I guess, what Soshin is saying, and um, I, I guess it relates to some of the reasons why we haven't been serving this market. Um, I mean, some of what I've picked up is that um, we, we apply very um, formal market thinking and we, we try and um, direct that to the informal market. Um, you know, it's very easy to say, uh, you know, we shouldn't um, save and borrow at the same time, for example. Um, but the, this is how people actually live their lives. Or, for example, um, and David, I'm not trying to take away from your comment that we shouldn't spend too much on a funeral, but um, that that has a sense of community, it has a sense of culture, and it's a mourning process that, if it's not done, could incur other costs in their lives, for example. Um, so the point I'm trying to make is that we really, really need to get into the lives of the customer and really, really understand them, as opposed to dictating to them what's right or wrong from a very formal, um, developed world point of view. Mm. Um, the same can be said for our financial education materials. So I spent some time in Kenya recently, um, and I looked at some of the material that we are presenting um, to very, very vulnerable people in the community. Um, that live off 10 shillings a day, which is less than one US cent or whatever. Um, and we were teaching them about budgeting. We were teaching them about um, savings and some of the, the products that we have, um, which is a very westernized way of managing your money. Um, how do you tell that to somebody who has 10 shillings a day to live on? Um, and actually what ended up happening in that session is that people around the table were sharing ways on how they could manage their lives as opposed to saying, hey, we're this big insurance company, come and take out a product and we'll solve all your problems kind of thing. Um, 
And um, I guess the, the last point is just that we, we have to make, meet the customer pain point. Um, you know, Soshin, in your example, when you, when you spoke about the agriculture insurance, that's a pain point for, for the customer because that's something that they really, really go through um, you know, a time of need. Um, so, so let's start thinking about the customer in a more holistic manner. Let's observe customers. Um, let's look at the research and, and let's not just um, incorporate our westernized idea um, of, of what it is to, to manage your finances um, to a market that isn't operating in that way. Um, and just another example to draw on is um, even in, in Kenya, for example, there, there's um, uh, even in the affluent or population, everyone has a side hustle. Okay, um, so I met an investment banker that has a farm on the side and that has a, he's starting up his own business uh, as, as an investment bank as well. Um, no way in our material do we talk about the concept of a side hustle or starting your own business or, you know, um, having formal and informal employment. Can we incorporate all of these cultural elements um, and then really, really get to meet the customer? Thanks, Darren. Those are all valid points. We now pretty much run out of time, and I don't want to eat into time for Ryan's uh, section, but I just want to, cl in closing, just to say, just to leave the audience with a few thoughts. So Dr. Ramsamy didn't get some time to talk about this, but I'd really like to challenge the, the profession to think about uh, community service in a sense for us. You know, doctors have it. Why don't we actually have some form of immersive studies that takes us out of our comfort zone mm. in front of the customers, serving people, you know, doing a financial needs analysis, debt re rehabilitation. It's something that could be easily formalized and would open up our minds to how customers live and experience um, their daily lives and their daily stresses. Um, but I'd just like to thank the panel in closing. And uh, just as a final word, this session was sponsored by Actuaries Without Frontiers, which is the outreach uh, program of ASA. We've kind of been flying under the radar and doing a few small things like uh, trying to create an online financial literacy game. So if anybody's interested in joining and helping out, we, we have an exciting team of people in Cape Town and Joburg. Uh, so you can come and speak to me afterwards. And the session was also co-hosted by Asaba, so Ryan Hausen, who helped uh, put together the panel and gave us a lot of feedback. So He's just going to say a few words as well, and then I'll hand over to Ryan. Okay, um, thanks. Um, yeah, quick uh, closing note from the uh, Saba community, community upliftment team. Thanks a lot, Divya and Actuaries Without Frontiers for hosting this panel discussion. It's been an item on the agenda of both our committees for a while now, and I think we can see um, a lot more of these talks happening in future. And also, uh, thanks a lot for all the panelists, especially uh, Dr. Ramsamy, who uh, our uh, committee has developed a strong working relationship with. And what's great to hear is how financial inclusion and finan uh, financial literacy resonate so well with what we've been discussing over these last two days. Uh, certainly, disruptive technology and innovation play a pivotal role in financial inclusion and financial literacy is where we see our behavioral tools and behavioral economic shine. And never far away, um, we'll find data to always analyze. So these are the type of projects that the Asaba Social Upliftment Committee actively pursue and engage in. And if you want to find out more about them and more about what we do, then please come speak to us and with Actuaries Without Frontiers because we collaborate on a lot of things. <laughs> And maybe you'll stay a while and uh, in true 8020 fashion. Thank you. Mm -hmm.